we've been talking about patient engagement and patient experience for a really long time, but we those are still outgrowths of what was done to the patient. But we're seeing huge like efflorescences of emphasis on the what happened data, the movement towards real world data in the pharma space, and the inclusion of real world data endpoints and trials is a big signal to me that that uh, regulatory agencies are starting to take this data seriously. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next big thing in health. I'm your co-host, Matt Isles. And I'm Laura Evans. Our guest today is Amanda Goltz, U.S. healthcare lead for worldwide public sector healthcare venture capital and startups at Amazon Web Services. She also advises several startups as a mentor with Rock Health, a San Francisco-based health IT incubator, and StartX Med, a health and life sciences incubator for Stanford University's top entrepreneurs. Amanda, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This season of The Next Big Thing in Health is sponsored by Teladoc Health, partnering with health insurance providers to reinvent care delivery models. To live their healthiest lives, consumers are turning to virtual care for ongoing, complex, and mental health care needs. Is your organization prepared to meet consumer demand using virtual care? Visit teledochealth.com backslash AHIP-2022 to learn more. Wow, that is quite a job title you have there at Amazon Web Services. Maybe you could just share a little bit uh, about what your role entails and, and how'd you get to Amazon? Absolutely, and it is it is quite a mouthful. Uh, we have we have so many different ways to uh, help our customers and and support our customers that uh, there's sort of an infinite range of detail in the title that one can have. Um, what all that essentially boils down to is for our public sector healthcare customers in AWS, which we idiosyncratically define as uh, non-profit, not-for-profit health systems, uh, academic medical centers, state and local health governments, and federal health agencies. What I do is I try to create opportunities at those customers for the most promising startups that are going to bring innovation to healthcare. So it's helpful when those startups are built on AWS, of course, uh, but we believe that if a startup is natively built on AWS in terms of its cloud structure and that the customer obviously is on AWS, we'll be able to help solve some of the integration and deployment challenges. So that's that's the working thesis. Um, I, I love my work at Amazon. I've been here three years and I've actually recently joined this AWS team. Uh, before that, I spent two and a half years at Alexa for health and wellness, which is in a completely different part of the organization. It's in our devices org. Uh, and Alexa, of course, is the friendly uh, AI inside the Echo line of devices and some third-party devices. And that was particularly exciting. I should actually mute mine because she just woke up and you know, started <laughs> asking me what I wanted. The danger uh, of just saying Alexa. <laughs> exactly. It's a it's an occupational uh, hazard. Um, I find the strangest things in my Amazon shopping cart because uh, I, I mention her wake word, she wakes up and then she, she interprets some of my requests as shopping. Uh, but it, my goal in Alexa was uh, to make Alexa a, a ubiquitous, helpful healthcare assistant in the home. 
that was exciting to me because it was the first time in my 25 years in working in the healthcare industry that I felt that I directly served the patient with no intermediary. So I came to Amazon because of that opportunity. Uh, if I had a talking robot on hundreds of millions of households, if I can just figure out what to make it say, I can directly communicate with the patient to help keep them healthier. Uh, so before I came to Amazon, I was working at those intermediaries, um, starting uh, at the very beginning and moving forward. I worked for a, a state a public private healthcare system, uh, New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation in New York. And I switched to the opposite end of the provider spectrum and went to the academic medical center, which was then called Partners Healthcare, now known as Mass General Brigham. Uh, it was very soon after uh, partners had formed as an entity. So one of my primary roles there was to ensure the same level of high quality and safety across all of the various hospitals that had just formed this um, coalition uh, in, the, in the sense of partners. And and uh, there I put up the first web-enabled, that's what we used to call it back then, mm -hmm. uh, report card for all of partners' constituent hospitals um, on various uh, safety and quality metrics, how many falls were in each of the hospitals, the tobacco cessation rates for the physician practices, et cetera. And I was convinced that once this data was liberated to, uh, to the general public, people would start making wise buying decisions turns out when you're having a heart attack, you do not stop and consult Amanda's website to see which hospital has the lowest time to PCI rate. Instead, you just go to the emergency room, which is probably wise. Uh, so I figured I needed a better way of engaging uh, patients and families in their care. Same time, um, 2009, uh, the ARA High Tech Law was passed, uh, which everybody remembers now for the incentives for physicians and hospitals to purchase electronic health record systems, but also gave a ton of money to states to uh, wire themselves for uh, healthcare data exchange. So I moved out to California. I figured biggest state, most tech. I worked for uh, the Department of Health and Human Services at California under contract to a consultancy um, to build the strategic and operational plan for that data transfer. Uh, we submitted it to the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology and got our $40 million. Unfortunately, not what I can call a huge success. <laughs> Anybody who's tried to exchange health data in the state of California will note that we are sometimes still using the fax machine, but it was a great introduction to uh, some of the major healthcare players in California. Uh, one of those was the head of Pacific Business Group on Health who said, uh, Amanda, why don't you come work for me and the big employers? I said, why? What do employers have to do with healthcare? He said, well, they pay for most of it. Mm -hmm. So I said, all right. And uh, I started up a consumer engagement and innovation shop at PBGH, which is a coalition of 60 large employers that collectively spend uh, 12 billion annually, it's probably considerably more now, on health benefits for their employees and dependents. Uh, that was a really fascinating look at how employers make buying decisions, how uh, they choose one health plan over another, uh, what the RFP process is like, um, and that we've, we've sort of delegated uh, these healthcare buying decisions that affect millions of people to people who are not healthcare experts and don't claim to be, right? They're, they're human resources professionals. They are fabulous at, at acquiring talent uh, and maintaining the, the people um, for their organization, but they, they don't profess to be healthcare experts, yet they make these critical decisions. Uh, after a while of um, 
having startups present to an audience of employers and having the health plans on the side. Uh, one of those health plans, Aetna, uh, was like, Amanda, what are you doing? You're, you're, just, you're just doing a lot of show and tell. Come build these new products. Um, so I said I would love to, and I joined Aetna, uh, where I was director of product innovation, trying to link up startups from the outside to Aetna's core uh, health and wellness programs to improve population health. That was an amazing uh, learning opportunity. Um, as I mentioned to you before the show, uh, I encourage all of my mentees to spend time at a health plan. I think you can't really understand how healthcare works in this country. You certainly can't understand the financial flow unless you've worked at a health plan and understand uh, the incentives and the decision-making. Um, so I moved on from there because uh, I got an opportunity to start my own innovation center from scratch uh, to the largest uh, pharma and medical device company in the UK called BTG. Uh, then I had global innovation, which was super exciting. Um, we worked mostly with palliative devices. So one of our challenges uh, uh, was to explain to the FDA and other regulatory bodies, yes, we don't prolong life, but we do improve the, the quality of life, the function of these patients who are struggling with these serious diseases. So, you know, sometimes that's just as important as living longer. Um, and that was a, a real data challenge to be able to, to make those proof points. Uh, I would have happily done that forever, um, but Boston Scientific came along and purchased BTG. Uh, Boston Scientific has their own healthcare innovation experts. They didn't need me. So I was casting about for what to do. And Amazon came and found me and said, how about the patients? You've done provider, payer, uh, purchaser, and pharma, all the Ps. How about the last one, the patient? And so I came to Alexa. Uh, Alexa was a fantastic ride. Um, I, I loved my work there. We launched uh, medication management. We launched Alexa, get me a doctor with Teladoc. Uh, and I just wanted a new challenge. So this opportunity was open in AWS. It was a chance to get back to working really closely with startups and hospitals. And so I jumped at the chance. What amazing experience you've had. I, I know everybody wants to get inside of that head of yours who's in, <laughs> in the health space. Um, and you're only 29 years old and you've done all that. Oh, I know. Isn't it amazing how time warps itself? I just, I just keep aging backwards. It's fabulous. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, since you've had that front row seat to, as you were talking about in, in this position to all the challenges that startups and smaller companies face, can you talk about those challenges? Um, what, what are the challenges that they tend to see when they're trying to do business with the public sector? Absolutely. This is one of my favorite topics, um, and I've been in it in those various roles uh, and advising startups for, um, gosh, almost 15 years now. So it's, uh, it's exciting to think of the change. Um, I think there's been a real arc uh, and evolution of the sophistication of startups. When we started, every startup felt that they were going to sell direct to consumer. And it, it took several years to figure out that unfortunately there's not a real market. Wellness, yes, fitness, absolutely. Look at the success of, of Fitbit and others, but uh, not really for direct healthcare services. For better or for worse, since we've had um, uh, the majority uh, employer mediated insurance, uh, in this country since World War II, people tend to think uh, that healthcare services should come for free or that somebody else should pay for them. And uh, they don't really think of paying out of pocket to see a doctor. That's changing. And it accelerated rapidly during COVID when people really embraced direct-to-consumer telehealth. We now see a lot of direct-to-consumer prescription medications through companies like Hims and HERS and Roe and others. So uh, that's really changing. But back back in the beginning, um, that that hadn't happened yet. And so startups really felt, you know, if I can make it simple, easy, inconvenient, people will buy directly. No, actually, for several reasons. People love their doctor. They trust their doctor. 
Uh, it's, it's going to be a high bar for them to break away from their doctor in an emergent situation like COVID, for example. Um, the second thing is that people have that expectation that somebody else will pay. And the third thing is, except for some very narrowly defined situations, prescription medications are one of them, it's very difficult up front to tell somebody what the total cost of care will be. Uh, anybody who's been listening to this podcast understands why that is. AHIP does a ton of deep research and work into why cost tr transparency is a challenge, but the startups didn't really understand that. And it's very difficult for a consumer, direct-to-consumer market, to purchase something when they don't know how much it's going to cost, right? Uh, plus, there's no guarantee that they're going to feel better because that's not how healthcare works. So we saw a lot of startups pivot, learn that, and pivot uh, to selling directly to employers. Now, that's really challenging because you have to go one by one. And employers sometimes compete with each other for talent. So they're not really super open about their benefit strategies or, you know, which amazing benefits they're giving, because that's exactly how they make their company stronger by luring and retaining talent. So that's a challenge as well. There are some purchasing coalitions, but they tend to be highly voluntary. Um, and then again, you're selling to a group of people who are not versed in healthcare. So the response of an HR decision maker is going to be talk to my health plan. So now you're selling to the employer and to the health plan. And at the health plan, there's a challenge in that it's the purpose, the fiduciary responsibility of a health plan is not to open its APIs to nonprofits. It's mm -hmm. to generate profit for shareholders and to take care of the populations that they serve, right? So uh, a startup is asking uh, a health plan to do a lot of deep integration work that, frankly, they're not incentivized to do for an mm -hmm. unproven solution. I, the joke I used to make, and this is, a, this is a little bit of a rough joke, but I think you will understand because it's in the context of me, me trying to change this, is trying to integrate a startup with a healthcare digital health startup with a health plan is a little bit like trying to connect a typewriter to the internet. They mm -hmm. both make text. Yeah. They're both yeah. trying to do the same thing, yeah. but you know, the integration just isn't, it just isn't there. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's a, it's a heavy, heavy lift to, to build that. Um, so that was, a, that was a challenge as well. Um, and then I, I've seen huge changes in all of that. Uh, on the hospital side, I think what's challenging for digital health startups is that hospitals really want a clinically validated solution. They're saving lives. They don't have a lot of time. They certainly do not have the legal leeway to test out unproven things on live human beings who are already in distress. So there's a little bit of a vicious cycle there where the startup needs a proof point, which means they need a pilot with a hospital or a clinic. They can't get one because nobody wants to experiment, fairly so, and so they, they have a tough time doing that. And there's also a high bar at some of the hospitals. They want the proof point to be relevant to their patient population, so it's difficult for them to expect clinical trials done in other countries, for example, or um, I, a study that was done on a small amount of patients or a small amount of members as a health plan as a reason to go big. And then on top of all of that, the sales cycle is very slow. Uh, about two years um, for digital health startup. And that's incredibly challenging for impatient venture cap who wants to see the startup return money uh, in a very short amount of time. So there's a lot of pressure on startups. I have a lot of sympathy. At the same time, uh, you know, they, they really need to sort of do their homework. Uh, I think in Silicon Valley, especially where I live, there's the myth of the super passionate um, entrepreneur with a personal connection who says, you know, my grandmother died of, of diabetes because it was untreated and, and I'm, my app is going to cure diabetes. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> so what can your app do? Um, and in terms of disrupting healthcare, you know, our, our national health expenditure uh, from last year is larger than the gross domestic product of Germany. Nobody wakes up and says, my app is going to disrupt the economy of Germany today. Why would you make the same claim 
about an app in healthcare. So I think it's all about finding the solvable problems, although unfortunately nobody wants to hear that, uh, and doing just such an amazing job solving that problem that you scale into other problems. I, I think that's really the key. And, and I think that uh, I, hospitals and providers and health plans and pharma and employers have all done their jobs in trying to communicate that to the startups. And we're starting to see the answer in the products that are developed. How exciting. Yeah, yeah there's so many great examples there, uh, Amanda. And you spoke early about your passion for going to directly serving the patient um and and getting closer there there's a lot of different barriers uh and you've worked in all different sectors are there any specific initiatives now or programs at aws you know any startups you're working with that you're particularly excited about yeah absolutely so the um my, what my group does is they try to address exactly that problem uh how can we get the startups ready for that initial deployment, such that they not only knock it out of the park, which is what everybody wants, but so that they can anticipate the hospital's needs, that they understand what happens when you work with Medicaid, that they're really versed in how a health plan processes claims. How do we how do we do all of that? And how do we take the burden off of those organizations who are trying to do their day jobs and put it on ourselves so that when the startups emerge from our programs, they are they are fully ready to sort of go to market. Um, and that's exactly what we do. We have an accelerator program. Uh, we just our initial one last year to great success. We have some uh, great companies that came out of that. One of my favorites, of course, is Ava Health that deploys Alexa devices in hospitals near and dear to my heart because uh, it leverages Alexa, but we have several others. You can find them um, on the AWS website. There's an announcement that just went out uh, this spring um, about a cohort in the UK, which is getting startups ready to enter into the National Health Service um, that's led by my colleague uh, in the UK. Haxley, and he uh, has focused some of these startups on mental health challenges, which is incredibly important post-COVID. Um, so those are deploying, and some of those have an interest in moving to the U.S. So we just recently uh, ran, actually recently as yesterday, a go-to-market academy, which was a session with four of our major thought leaders at uh, hospital systems to speak directly on what their buying decision is influenced by when they work with startups. So we run these programs. We, we work with um, delivery partners. Uh, like Plexol and like Children's Hospital of LA, um, who can sort of convene the startups for us. Uh, and then at all of these programs coalesce into a demo day when our AWS public sector customers come and shop and they pick which startups will meet which problems and they uh, uh, give um, pilot opportunities and scaling opportunities from there. Um, so we're very new as a team. We're still trying to figure out in, in the great Amazon way of doing business, how do we scale this? How do we make a mechanism that, that changes it from a bunch of successful one-offs that we're really proud of into a constant repeating what we call a flywheel, which other people call a virtuous circle uh, or cycle um, that helps the startups come in, get the education and flow out to the hospitals. And how do we build demand on the hospital state and local and federal agency side so that they expect high value startups to be coming in and are allocating more and more to their innovation budgets and have more and more physician champions. Essentially, we're trying to solve the problem of, of the startups that, that maybe didn't work. And we're trying to say, look, digital health is a strong, powerful force for change. It just has to be the done the right way. Let us chew the glass for you and they'll be ready to go uh, on that demo day. So that's really what we focus on. So Amanda, you talked about your work um, at Amazon with Alexa Health and Wellness. We know a lot of people have 
Alexa devices, and many don't know that these health and wellness um, services exist. So how do you see people using their Alexa devices to stay healthy or to access healthcare services? And can you talk about the services that are available on Alexa? Absolutely, I'd be happy to. It's a very insightful question because that's actually our major challenge. How do people find these experiences? And for me, it was a real revelation because in the great Alexa firmament, Alexa has a lot of, of different departments and capabilities that she can do. There's sports, games, obviously shopping. Uh, there's Alexa Auto where she controls your car. There's the huge smart home division um, where she can uh, control all your smart devices in your house. There's a lot of home security integrations. Uh, and then there's a ton of fun stuff, you know, play, play this movie, play this song, play this game, amuse my kids, sing me to sleep, wake me up. So uh, how do people, um, find those experiences. Mm -hmm. Well, we do a lot of promotion. And when we do, uh, when we go to market with a partner, like when we have a pizza hut skill, for example, for ordering pizza, um, we do a lot of partner marketing. Uh, and we say, now you can just ask Alexa or works with Alexa. But the number one way that people find those experiences is they experiment. They sit at home messing around with Alexa and they say, Alexa, can you order me a pizza? And she says, yes, I can. Would you like a skill from pizza hut or Domino's or whatever the you know, appropriate partner is. And you say, oh, that's great. Yes, I'd like to try the domino skill and then you're off and running. No one with the possible exception of me sits at home on Saturday night and says, Alexa, can you maintain my childhood immunization record? And people just don't do that. And, you know, I'm making a joke out of it, but it's a, but it's a really interesting thing. We've It's brilliant. We've trained people to think that healthcare is this like other experience that you have. Right. It's, it's not integrated with anything else, right? Like I have my diabetes glucose monitor. It only does diabetes, it doesn't do anything else, right? I have, you know, my doctor, my doctor takes care of my health and I go to my doctor when I'm sick and I don't do anything else. And we've done, we've, we've separated the healthcare experiences from the experiences of daily life so much that when people have this helpful assistant that does everything else, they have no idea that it can do healthcare stuff. So here are the things Alexa can do. She can, if you if you give her a very explicit, explicit permission through a number of steps, she can connect to your pharmacy and she can uh, know which medications you're on and she can remind you to take them according to the dosing schedule. So if it's a drug you have to take twice a day, she'll remind you twice a day at the right time. Um, if and she can refill those meds for you. You simply say, Alexa, refill my meds. She checks which ones are available for refill. She tells you the ones that are available. She asks you if you want to refill them. You say yes, and she does it. So that's mm. an example. During COVID, we had uh, Alexa check my, uh, do I have COVID? Which was the CDC protocol that we ingested. And then she gave you uh, one of four outputs, you know, stay at home and quarantine. That sounds emergent, go to the ED or, you know, tell your primary care doc. Um, another really important thing that we did, this one unfortunately did have a lot of what we call organic discovery, um, was a mental health tool uh, on Alexa during COVID, especially during quarantine or lockdown. Um, if you said a, a number of things, about 200 utterances that were connected to, I'm sad, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, you know, why am I here, things like that, Alexa would offer you one of three options, um, tips from a therapist, a meditation exercise, or if you were in crisis, direct connection to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, the device, if you said yes, that's what I want, the device itself would start ringing like a phone and would connect you right through the device. Wow. So we have all of these, and the most recent, of course, is Alexa, I need a doctor, get me a doctor. Uh, and that uh, is Teladoc is our partner. So it says, uh, Alexa says, I can get you um, to a doctor in a couple minutes if you answer a couple questions. And that physician is Teladoc. And it's, it, but nobody thinks to ask Alexa these things, even though we made those initial utterances as simple and straightforward as we possibly could. So uh, 
some of that can be answered through smart promotion and marketing, but some of it is just training people that if you have a smart assistant, healthcare is part of your life. Wellness is part of your life. And it's should be as integrated as turning the lights on, checking your health every day, but we're, we're not there yet. So it's an interesting puzzle. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you if Alexa will tell you, because you were talking about the medications, will it tell you what medications don't work with others? Can I take Tylenol with Imitrex or, you know, can, can, will it, will it let you know about that? It will inside of a different experience. So we okay. wanted a, a really uh, robust library of information. We didn't want to use one particular pharmacy's information. No disrespect to them, but we wanted to use like the official source. Mm -hmm. um, so we we partnered with First Data Bank to get that data on drug interaction. So it's a slightly different experience with Alexa. You just ask Alexa the question you just asked and she will answer you, but it's not, she's not looking at your particular meds for, for drug drug interactions. That will be a great feature to build in the future. Yeah. Cause I know that's an issue for a lot of seniors. Teladoc Health helps ensure that health insurance providers and employers capitalize on the power of virtual care to meet their current needs and strategic vision. Teladoc Health, the leader in virtual care since 2002, has built the only comprehensive roadmap to drive healthcare value with a transformative approach to virtual care. To learn about the Teladoc Health virtual care transformation model, Built on deep industry insights designed for real world results, visit teledochealth.com backslash AHIP 2022. There you go. New product development, Laura. Fabulous. Come on. Right the health team. Are you listening? <laughs> it's just happening right here idea. on the podcast. <laughs> right. Well, you, you mentioned the partnership with Teledoc, and we know um, also just throughout the pandemic, what a big uh, increase we've seen in people using telehealth services. Um, do you think that that's going to continue going forward? And how do you think uh, you'll work at AWS with other organizations to sort of adapt as we figure out where, yeah, I often ask, like, what do we think the equilibrium is, right? Because we went to so much virtual care, we're coming back to more in-person care. No one really knows sort of where that sort of pendulum will ultimately sort of find that equilibrium. Absolutely. I think that's that's a great thing to focus on. I think there's some serious challenges that we're going to need to to rise to in the in the coming years. And, and some of them uh, we are the legacy of COVID um, as much uh, as COVID did to accelerate some forms of virtual care. I think there's there's a little bit of a reckoning that's coming in, um, which you you, I think, um, hinted at in your question, which is which is a great area of focus. Uh, and I, I also think there are some new horizons to discover. So, so here's what we have to reckon with. Um, in general, I think given the choice, and if all other things, and this is Amanda's opinion entirely, but if all other things are held equal, time to wait to see a doctor, um, number of services that doctor can provide me, I think people would rather see their own physician that has their medical history than a doctor who doesn't know them. Again, all things being equal. To, in COVID, the promise of seeing you know, a teledoc doctor or another doctor was much sooner and quicker than your physician who may not have um, the, the capability in their practice to provide virtual care yet. That is changing. Uh, we see companies um, like uh, Antwell and uh, <clears throat> e-visits that are growing incredibly quickly. We see uh, investments being made by health plans, You know, Cigna, person purchasing MD Live um, and at a very strong relationship with Teladoc uh, and others that, that are starting to work primary care, virtual primary care and, and um, 
urgent on-demand care uh, into standard offerings and giving physicians and uh, clinics the ability to to white label a primary care virtual offering, just like plug and play. And so they're they're off to the races. So I think that's gonna really encourage people to see their own doctor through virtual means. I see tremendous opportunity there, especially for chronic care management and uh, for healthy pregnancies in particular. Um, and I, you know, I was always impressed with Aetna's Beginning Right program. And one of the deals I did there was to uh, partner with Wildflower Help Health, which is a digital health app um, for healthy moms and healthy babies. And uh, just just the, the smallest touch, make the smallest amount of health available um, to people who need it in an easy way, huge gains on the back end. So I think um, virtual care working through the traditional channels of provider and payer is gonna be hugely successful. Here's a challenge that we have though. We're, we're looking at what, and I stole this term from um, former Assistant Secretary for Health and Human Services, Brett Girard, who just spoke at an event that we had at South by Southwest. We're looking at a cancer bomb. What he means by that is a ton of people went without detection or cancer screening, and a ton of people had uh, uh, small cancers, perhaps they had been detected, and they abandoned their treatment plan because COVID shut everything down or because it was terrifying to go to the hospital in COVID. So what we're going to see in the coming years is a huge amount of cancers that are uh, more complex to treat because they're more advanced and a ton of cancers that have not been detected yet that are about to be. Um, and I don't know that the system in its current state can bear that volume. So we're going to have to think of, we're going to take one of the most complex and challenging disease states and one of the most nascent technologies, which is virtual care, and we're going to swish them together and see how it works. Um, so uh, I think that's that's one of um, an urgent area if, if we're talking about public service, uh, which is one of my passions um, to, to sort of get on top of and understand how, how we can help. And, and I expect that that will be a focus um, for AWS moving forward. Uh, you know, we, we strive to um, help our customers achieve their goals. So we are, you know, everybody at Amazon says this, but it's honestly true. We are customer obsessed. So when our hospital and health system customers come to us and say, you know, we need help managing our data. We need to secure our data and we need to find a way to meet this challenge of a ton of people who need our services. We say, all right, let us figure that out. Some of it's AWS services, some of it's external solutions in the form of startups. But I don't, I don't think we, um, attempt to figure out which are the right solutions so much as figure out what's the best way. I don't think we like crown a certain startup king so much as we go to that individual customer and say, what's the right way and the safest way to get you to your goals the quickest? Yeah. Amanda, you have so much insight and experience, as we said before. Um, so here, here's us trying to get inside of your head. What is, what is one thing about your field that you wish more people understood? You're playing exactly to my, so now there's like serious soapbox time because like this is, <laughs> this is a big thing. So um, gosh, there's a lot. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go micro and then macro. Micro, and I, again, I swear I'm not playing to my audience. Ask anybody <laughs> who's been to any of my talks and they will say that I have, I have said this before. People love to say, and I think it's because it's reassuring to do this, that there's one villain in the US healthcare system. And if we could just get rid of that one villain, everything would be wonderful. And, and people have different positions, right? You know, people like, well, your doctors are only out for themselves and the malpractice are terrible. And, and of course the familiar one is, you know, health plans, if, if for-profit healthcare is so evil. And if we just got rid of that and doctors could do whatever they wanted, everything would be perfect. So no, <laughs> no, I've been doing this for 25 years and no, that is not the answer. And, you know, I will remind everybody 
respectfully that we are the ones that decided that for-profit health insurance was a good idea and made that a way to, you know, part of our sort of economic firmament. No evil person came and did that. We as a society decided that that, that made sense. Um, and, uh, you know, also just on a, on a minor note, I would challenge anybody to, to look at their retirement portfolio and see if any health plans are in it. So it's also been taking care of a lot of us into old age. Um, but, you know, I, the real reason, aside from my personal grievance, is it, it's not that simple. And as long as we keep thinking in those simplistic ways, we won't make the meaningful change that we need to to save lives. The system itself has a lot of terrible incentives such that each player, pharma, patient, provider, purchaser, and payer acting completely rationally will create incredible negative externalities. And that's what we see. And that's why all these people acting rationally in a system that makes no sense yields a a situation in the U.S. where we spend the most money for the the least good outputs uh, in terms of um, global health, uh, mortality, and uh, the general uh, health of our population. So I wish people understood that so that we could really look at the system and what needs to change. And if we did that, we could start doing really investing in these meaningful experiments. Some of them are value-based health. That's a great idea. But I think value-based care is only as good as the measurements. And we're not yet measuring what inputs went to what outputs. We're not yet figuring out oh, this person had X, Y, and Z done to them, and then they felt great and were much better, but that person had A, B, and C, and it didn't do so well. Why is that? And the reason we're not doing that is because our current system pays for what was done, not what happened. So we're going to have to get really smart at measuring what happened, as as good at that as we are at measuring what was done. Then we've got to draw a lot of cause and effect inferences from that, and then we all have to figure out a way to incentivize that form of good care. That implies a massive change to the payment system, which is not easy. <laughs> We're done under uh, overnight. I'm not naive, um, but it only we can only sort of gather the political will and the, the safety mechanisms to to create a glide path for our current institutions to get there if we all stop with the you know here's the bad guy and start really thinking about what's the system we really want. Brilliant. Well, you've been so generous with your time, Amanda, and we ask all our guess this one final question and i'll say this is the first time i'm almost afraid to ask the question (laughs) but i have to do it anyway because you've covered so much and there's like so much there's so many interesting things to think about about what you've shared over the last half hour last half hour or so so what do you think is the next big thing in health Oh, how long do I have? (laughs) What a great question. Um, And I love listening to to other folks' answers. And I think a diversity of of opinions on this is a good thing. I think if we all agreed what the next big thing was and we still weren't doing it, that would be a problem. (laughs) So I like that. I like that there's a lot of different answers. You know, honestly, I think I think the next big thing is related to that to that emphasis on the data of what happened. Um, we've been talking about patient engagement and patient experience for a really long time, but we those are still outgrowths of the what was done to the patient, right? Like how soon the nurse came and how noisy the hospital ward was, which are the HCAPS measures. There's still measures of what was done to the patient, still not what happened afterward. Um, but we're seeing huge like efflorescences of emphasis on the what happened data the movement towards real world data in the pharma space and the inclusion of real world data endpoints and trials is a 
big signal to me that that uh, regulatory agencies are starting to take this data seriously. The the nascent regulate we've got a long way to go, but the nascent regulations coming out for software as a medical device, uh, the FDA are starting to recognize that there is there is not one standard thing that can be done, but rather the patient's response to using software to manage their condition um, is various, and and we need to track different ways. Uh, and different outputs in order to understand what is a what is an acceptable and safe uh, intervention and what is not. Um, we're starting to see uh, even greater emphasis on patient choice and selection of where they go for their care, who they choose to go to, um, and the direct-to-consumer piece I mentioned before on uh, prescription medications and even uh, Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon Care back at home um, are starting to to sort of build up a, a true um, direct-to-consumer market. I think the direct-to-consumer market is is a little bit confined for the reasons I mentioned before, but it does teach people that they can make choices about their care and that their doctor is not sort of the, I, I don't know what's wrong, but I'm going to my doctor first and they're going to decide everything else that happens. Once you start to break apart that paradigm, almost anything can happen. So I, I and of course the, the, the choices of the younger generations, not just millennials, um, but the Gen Z generation and the way they look at, I don't, I don't need a family doctor, I'm just gonna get care wherever I can, whenever I need it in a retail sense. Um, they're, they're a minor voice now, because they're not very sick, because they're young and healthy, but in the future, they will be. So, um, uh, and when they start consuming a lot of healthcare, uh, when they get to childbearing age um, and middle age, I think this is all going to accelerate. So the next big thing is going to be building up evidence bases of data on what actually happened and how people felt about their care and if they perceive that they got better versus they lived or they died, which is the mortality endpoint, or it was a successful surgery or it wasn't, which is the doctor's endpoint, or uh, they stopped generating claims, which is the payer's endpoint, but rather the patient's endpoint of, I'm glad I got that intervention. I'm glad I took that med. I'm glad I saw that doc. I'm glad I talked to that therapist. I would pay for it again. I think we're, that data is going to start to be used in financial arrangements, and I'm tremendously excited about that. Wow. A lot. Oh, good. Uh, yes, that was amazing. Thank you so much for being with us today, Amanda. Uh, really uh, wonderful discussion and a lot of food for thought. So insightful, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you so much for your amazing questions, for, for zeroing in on Alexa, which will always be near and dear to my heart, and for the great work you do to try to move us towards a better future in healthcare. So thank you. Teladoc Health helps ensure that health insurance providers and employers capitalize on the power of virtual care to meet their current needs and strategic vision. Teladoc Health, the leader in virtual care since 2002, has built the only comprehensive roadmap to drive healthcare value with a transformative approach to virtual care. To learn about the Teladoc Health virtual care transformation model built on deep industry insights designed for real world results you can visit teledochealth.com backslash ahip-2022.